Hey, Brian. Hey, Vic. You are listening to Game Federer, a podcast where Brian and I relive and revisit every Roger Federer Grand Slam title. Today, we're looking at 2017's Australian Open. Um, that was uh, light at the end of a long tunnel for Roger, where he collected his 18th Grand Slam, his fifth Australian Open title. This win made him the first player on the men's side to win at least five titles at three different slams. And perhaps most importantly, it was a Federer-Nadal final, something that few expected to happen again. We're going to get into all that, but I have a technical question for you. Restringing rackets mid-match. Rafa did it in this final. How common a thing is that? Well, it's very common. It usually comes down to how many rackets a player has at their disposal and it, what the conditions are. So if a player's got gone onto court with a bunch of rackets strung at the same tension, but then they get out there and the ball is just not behaving the way they want it to be, they're going to send some back to the stringer who's right on site just to have it tweaked a little bit. Now, if you and I were off hitting in the park, we wouldn't notice this. But if you're Rafael Nadal or Roger Federer in a major final, you can feel those millimeter differences, and they're going to matter. I mean, they're the difference between the ball landing six inches on the inside of the baseline and an inch long of the baseline. Like it, It's those minute, fine details. I call them like marginal gains, like those tiniest of things that make a difference. Um, so in a situation where you're not really comfortable with your racket, yeah, you're going to send it back to the stringer. Let's recap Rogers' Grand Slam results post-Wimbledon 2012 real quick. Going back to U.S. Open 2012, he's out in the quarters to Burdick. Australian Open 2013, he's out in the semis to Murray. Roland Garros 2013, out in the quarters to Sanga. Okay, the thing here that I put an asterisk by was his Wimbledon 2013 outing in the round of 64 to a guy named Sergei Stakovsky. Who's that? And also in the presser, it was mentioned to him that his fans will surely be mourning. Roger's response uh, quickly course-corrected me. They'll be okay, because I'll be okay. And then he mentions a 24-hour rule about this match. Don't know if you have any context on that. And then he said he's going to shrug it off. Uh, what happened, Wimbledon 2013? Well, for most of 2013, especially from about the spring, Indian Wells on, Federer was dealing with back issues. So this is another time where the injury, injury bug has bitten Roger. And throughout most of the first decade of the century, he was able to avoid that when he played his greatest tennis. But now the injuries are getting, I mean, he's creeping up to the ancient old age here at Wimbledon 2013. He's about to turn 32 years old. Uh, so he's not 100% physically. Should he have lost to Sergei Stokowski that day? Probably not. But Stokowski just played out of his mind. He's from Ukraine. Um, this is one of those career days where earlier on, we talked about guys having career days and they still weren't able to find a way through Federer. Here's Stokowski having a career day and he's able to find a way to get past Roger. Um, it's just one of those things. But I think what's most remarkable is this is time now. We talk about it a lot on this podcast to talk about the quarterfinal streak at majors. And it might be the most impressive Federer stat. How with this loss at Wimbledon ended a streak of 36 consecutive major quarterfinals. And that's just remarkable because the consistency to where you're playing deep into the second week of every single major 36 majors. That's almost 10 years worth of major tournaments. And it comes to an end, ironically, at Wimbledon, which is his happiest hunting ground out of all the major sites. Um, but it's just one of those things that was another sign that, wow, things, things are different this year. And it just doesn't look like that Federer is having a great year. U.S. Open 2013, out in the round of 16 to Tommy Robredo. That was a shocker, too, because he had beaten Robredo 10 times in a row. Right. That was a match. This is pre-roof at the U.S. Open that got moved to Louis Armstrong Stadium, which is the, the second court. And it was the first time Federer had played off Ash Stadium in over 10 years. 
And there's a difference. Um, is that why he lost to Robredo? No, I'm not saying that, but there's less room around the court. It's just a very different feeling than what you're used to. So Federer's uh, first time onto Armstrong in quite a while was not a happy one. And I believe, if I go back and check, this is one of those matches um, that prevented a potential Federer-Nadal meeting at the U.S. Open because that's where they've never met at a major, the only major where they haven't uh, squared off. And I believe Nadal won the tournament that year. Uh, let me just double check because I think Tommy Robredo uh, threw, a, threw a wrench into everything and then wound up losing to Nadal, I believe. Uh, yes, they would have played in the quarters and Nadal lost a grand total of four games to Tommy Robredo en route to the U.S. Open title. 2013, Brian, was Roger's lowest ranking in 11 years. And he cited, obviously, well, he actually didn't cite, but a lot of people came out of the woodwork to cite severe back issues. We continue into 2014. Australian, out in the semis to Nadal, straight sets, and it was a quick one. I remember that as far as just being kind of frightened, like, oh, this is, like, this is not, like, it's over. Like, I think I even said it's over back then. Uh, shame on me, right? I, I should be more loyal to my, uh, to my team, so to speak. You should, and you should use hindsight because January, Dece- December 2013, January 2014, two big changes for Federer going to play here. One, he hires Stefan Edberg as the coach, who was one of his childhood heroes as a tennis player. He's a six-time major winner. They're going to work together for the next two years. They're not going to win any majors together, but what Roger was able to accomplish in 2017 and 2018, you can see the seeds being planted by Stefan Edberg, just the serve and volley game, charging the net more, coming in, just being a little bit craftier. If you want to use the baseball cliche of the crafty lefty, take a look at that. The other big difference is something people have been calling for for years for Federer to do, and that's change the racket. Go to a bigger racket head. Roger, for years, um, and with good reason, he had a fair bit of success, he used a 90-square-inch uh, racket face. And that's relatively small for the, the modern game on tour. Um, it's great, though, because you get that, that precision. You know exactly what it's doing. It's basically an extension of your arm. But as you get a little bit older and maybe you're that quarter of a step slower, you're, it's less forgiving. So Roger goes up to a 97-square-inch racket face, and he has – Okay, no majors, but he has, by all accounts, a great year. 73 and 12, most matches he won in a year since 2006. He won five titles, 11 finals. Um, Very good year, but just no majors to show for it. Out in Roland Garros, round of 16 to Ernest Gulbis. Ernest Gulbis. And then Wimbledon uh, 2014, out in the final to Djokovic. Five-setter, four hours. Um, I went back and watched the presser to this. I just wanted to kind of get like the tenor. Uh, the general vibe from Roger, and he is uh, surprisingly calm, surprisingly sort of stoic. Um, you know, he's happy that he's kind of like in finals, so to speak. It will be echoed again in another year, so I'll come back to the, the presser against Djokovic coming up. But let me jump in r- real quick. When you talk about that Djokovic loss, noteworthy there because we talk about how Roger, you know, Djokovic has gotten the better of him in most of their meetings. Twenty fourteen. Uh, the other members of, of the big four at the time, you, you throw in Murray and Djokovic. Okay, he loses to Nadal in Australia. That was the only time they played. So he's 0-1 against Nadal. He went 3-1 in 2014 against Djokovic. The only loss was that Wimbledon final. And he went 3-0 and against Andy Murray. So a very good year against his, his peers at the top of the game. He did say in one of the pressers, actually, uh, I think it was a Wimbledon one, where he said, look, I've won this. I've been fortunate enough to win here many times, so I'm not chasing anything. And right. I think that's also that's also self talk. I'll give you that because he is chasing himself, oh, big right? time. But um, you know, sitting sitting on at this point, he is sitting on seven Wimbledon's. You know, it's it is kind of a like okay, I'm I'm 34, 35 years old, but he'll get surprisingly more thoughtful. And I think it's one of the things I want to talk to you about today, in particular, at the end of this uh, Australian Open final, was sort of Roger's comments afterward. I'll argue it was one of his best, and we'll see when we get there. U.S. Open 2014, he's out in the semis to Chilich. I, I did that match. He got, like, blown off the court by Marin Chilich, who went on to win that tournament. Fast, yeah, like 90 minutes. Like, Chilich was on another level, like, just beating him up. Uh, and that went on, Marin Chilich went on to win his uh, one and only, to this point, major title, that U.S. Open. Kane Ishikori in the final. Another one where 
We thought we might have uh, Djokovic Federer in the final again at the U.S. Open. Uh, K beats Djokovic and uh, Chilich handles Federer. So we got a Chilich Nishikori fun. What do you remember about that Chilich Federer match? Like, what, like were you? Uh, so you prepared, right? You're going to call this match, and yeah. you are. You're not biased, obviously, because you're got to right. be objective. But you're you're expecting Roger's a favorite. Um, yeah, he was a favorite, but not. Put it this way, I didn't expect it to be a blowout either way. And it was a blowout, but it was a blowout Marin Cilic's way. It's almost like that's, if you're going to pick a blowout, you probably would have picked a blowout in favor of Cilic just because he had the firepower. Whereas Roger, it's not gonna, he's not going to blow anybody off the court. I mean, Cilic just overpowered him that day. Like, it was really impressive to watch. Was the crowd frustrated? Yeah, very. Just kind of stunned silence. Yeah. I feel bad for the Chiliches of the world that win matches like that because, you know, um, again, quoting Roger, uh, he was complaining about the media and one of his pressers about how they hyped up a Nadal-Federer match, and he said it's a disservice. It's sort of disrespectful to the other players that get here and make it here. Um, I thought that was, a stri- that was a really good thing for him to say. I think in general, like, he's also deflecting the hype machine a little bit in, away from him, but it is true. Like, Chilich crushed him. He should get that U.S. Open applause or that vibe. Right. Um, but it's, uh, it's a brutal sport, like they say, over and over yep. again. Australian Open 2015. Still two years away from where we're going to eventually be talking about. Shows you how long this wilderness was. Uh, out in the round of 32 to Seppi. Again, round of 32. First week Roger Federer outing. Not looking good. Roland Garros 2015. I was surprised that he actually played in this tournament. I made a note here. I thought that, you know, he, given the odds, given where he's been faring, like I just felt like this tournament should have been off of his list at this point. But again, shows how much I know. He makes it out, makes it to the quarters and loses to his friend and fellow countryman, Stan the Man. It's interesting you you bring that up about uh, playing on clay. Sitting it out and focusing on the hard court and grass. So we're still a few years away from doing that. But I think what's interesting to note is you look at the scheduling choices Federer made in 2015. And not only did he, did he play the full clay season, he went, even started earlier, I'm guessing he was paid a lot of money to show up. But he played um, in Istanbul where there's a red clay tournament in late April. So before even the Masters level events, he got on the clay early. One Istanbul was his first title on red clay in like six or seven years um, so he's, he's got a red clay title under his belt. So that just shows to me that like, that was maybe the last, not the last, but he's knowing that he's not getting too many more bites at the French open apple. So it's like, let's go not all in, but let's really make a push for this because he's healthy. You know, 2014, he goes into that season wondering how the body might respond coming off of 2013. So maybe he schedules differently, but 2015, he's enjoying health here. So he, he goes for it a little bit. He goes for it, and he actually finishes 2015 pretty well. He's a oh, runner-up at Wimbledon. Uh, and the U.S. Open. And the U.S. Open, both losing to Djokovic, both four setters. But again, he's very calm about it, Brian. He said in one of the interviews, um, or pressers, he's happy that he played on his terms the whole tournament. And uh, you know things were all right physically for him. And he's in finals, two consecutive right. finals. And nowhere do his own terms become more evident than what maybe is the most remembered uh, moment of this Federer stretch. And that's the 2015 U.S. Open, still with uh, Stefan Edberg. This is towards the end of their partnership. But this is where Roger unveiled the uh, the Sabre method. That that was what it was nicknamed, that sneak attack by Roger, which other players have done it, but it got a cool name thanks to the media. And essentially when he's receiving serve, he'll, he'll rush in and take the serve really, really early. Um, and it, it brought him to the U.S. Open final where he was uh, beaten in four, I, I would say, edgy, cagey sets by Djokovic. Like, that was a crowd. So, some U.S. Open knowledge or memories here. This was, they had just started building the roof at the U.S. Open, but it wasn't done. So, you had essentially like an open roof, but it was already beginning to like really trap the noise. And this final was Sunday like evening. They went back to the Sunday final here after the five or six straight years of Mondays. Sunday evening, the match started at probably like five or six o'clock. So it was a very, uh, let's say, well-lubricated crowd 
And that U.S. Open crowd is always a pro-Federer crowd. It's often uh, not the biggest Djokovic crowd either. So it was a very, very rowdy atmosphere. Um, and I, I also think that one helps boost the legend of Djokovic a bit because you survive all this stuff going on and you beat Federer for the second straight major in a row uh, to win the U.S. Open. No, absolutely. He He completely is like oblivious to the crowd in a way like it doesn't it doesn't affect him at all how did he shunt the saber i mean Federer's not doing it you can't do it every point and i i think but it was ineffective it was ineffective against him right because djokovic is able to disguise it enough and federer has to respect djokovic i would say more than anybody else where he can't just like blindly commit to those net rushes like he's got to be a little more strategic um, so it's just not, you're just not able, like Djokovic takes a lot of weapons away and that was one of them. When you call these games, Brian, where are you on the court? Are you down low? Is it up a little bit higher? Like where's your orientation? I am way up. Um, like if you watch the U S open, there's that row of booths. Uh, like if you're, um, so I'm all the way up top, but I, I actually do a lot of it off the monitor just because you can get a little more detail. I was just going to say, like, are you looking at a screen, like right where you are? Like, are you looking at a screen? Or are you watching the actual match? A bit of both, actually. It, it really depends on what's going on. Um, but it's really a bit of both. As I've gotten older, my eyesight's deteriorated. I've gone more monitor. And like, do you, like, do you hear, like, do you get a, are you getting a feed Yeah, we have a court from feed. Anybody? Yeah, so we hear, it's actually kind of what you hear on TV. Um, like, that's just the, the, court feed that's fed out to the broadcasters all around the world. Oh, like all the, all the, all the fans, the same feed that they're listening to in their little earpieces. No, it's not quite that. It's like, if you're watching on TV and you hear, you know, the squeak of the shoes and the players grunting, gotcha. uh, you hear like somebody cursing, like you hear all that. Um, it sounds like you're sitting courtside. Are you on those little things they hand out? Or is that the, is that the, the John McEnroe, is that the TV broadcast that people hear? Um, it's a bit of both. So for those who don't know, if you've been to the U S open or actually now a lot of tournaments, uh, you can get a little earpiece. Um, you have to buy it, right? No. Um, it's usually free. It's usually, so I actually work a lot with uh, the guy who runs that company. Uh, it's a company called live sports radio. And it's usually done in terms of a sponsor tie-in like at the U S open, it's an American express promotion. Um, so if you have an American express card, you go up, you show your card, you get your free radio. Um, and you can, it tune, it takes the TV broadcast, but there's also like, if you're on the site on, on site, like at the tournament, you can, there's somebody in there who is sometimes me, like just sort of directing traffic because when TV goes to a commercial or if they're doing something that is sort of irrelevant to the person who's sitting in the stadium, like we'll pick it up and just be like, you know, you're listening to, I forget the, the branding name. But uh, here we are on this Labor Day Monday, and we've got so-and-so playing here, so-and-so playing here. Earlier today, this person won. So it's making me sad actually talking about this because it won't be around this year because there won't be any fans of the U.S. Open. Uh, but it's one of the cool little perks. Yeah, that's, oh, that's a great point. You're going to be doing, you're going to be calling the U.S. Open in a few weeks. And we mentioned this off mic, by the way, that this podcast is going to, the timing is perfect. It's going to lead us right into actual real tennis. So that's actually kind of a beautiful thing because part of the uh, impetus for doing this was the fact that we had no tennis to watch. Right. So it was, it was it, is your orientation going to be any different now that there's nobody there? Like, will you be sitting lower? Like, like I'm not sure yet. I, I don't think it has anything to do with crowd. I think it has more to do with some of the precautions that they're taking just to space everybody out. Um, I, I, I think I'll be in a different place, but I'm not uh, entirely sure yet where that is. I mean, I'll be on site, but I don't know um, exactly where I'll be. As long as there's a monitor, it doesn't, it's fine. Do you have any like Intel on, like, is it going to be like a, like a traditional TV broadcast? Like it always has like, like McEnroe and, and, and his team, like his crew, are they going to do their same, the same thing? Or is that not socially distant anymore? Cause the boxes are pretty small. Um, I mean, I would think if you're watching at home, I, I don't have any Intel on this, you know, it's an ESPN thing. I, I would like the, the broadcast, like the matches will be broadcast. Um, I think it's more just like they'll be physically spaced out. Maybe I'm really not, not hundred percent sure, but like, I think if you're the average person watching at home likely won't notice a difference. Like if you watch a baseball game right now, um, there usually is going to be the play by play broadcaster will be in one booth and the color guy will be in another booth. It's like they're separated a little bit, but they're still to get like, if you're watching, you don't really know that I would imagine this is what uh, the U S open will be like. In basketball, they, they're separating them with plexiglass. Yes. And, and uh, you know, but they have more room there to kind of spread exactly. out. Exactly. Um, all right. 
moving along as we digress here. So 2015, the way Roger ends, like on a high, another really good year. Like, so 2014, he goes 73 and 12. He wins five titles. 2015, he goes 63 and 11. He wins six titles. He's in major finals both years. Um, and you're thinking, like, okay, he's, he's still very much at the top of the game. Can he break through? And he just hadn't won that major title in this stretch. And I think there's a good case to be made that he could have in 2016, but this is the year that he really had the physical problems and it, it maybe delayed everything a little bit further because he just had no luck in 2016 with his various injuries. Despite that, though, he still made it to two semifinals, Australian and Wimbledon, uh, out to Djokovic in four sets at the Australian and five-setter to Milos Raonic, who we haven't really talked about a lot. There's a couple of players, Brian, in the Australian Open of 2017 that I'm going to rattle off, and I'd like to get your thoughts and perspective on. Uh, I can't remember if he's one of them or not. Sure. Um, But all told, Brian, this is 15 Grand Slams Roger played in, but came up short. Three of those 15 were in the finals. Um, that was this wilderness that we have been speaking of, sort of building up to. Thoughts on this portion of Roger's career in general, 2013 to 2016, and obviously by extension, the rest of the tennis world, if you will. Who was filling the gaps? Who was ascending? Obviously, we know the main two players, but were there any sort of uh, notable moments during this period for you? Not so notable moments. So 2013, we have um, Andy Murray follows up his U.S. Open title. He wins Wimbledon. So that's a breakthrough there. Nadal closes off another dominant, not dominant, but another major title. He wins the U.S. Open. He beats Djokovic. 2014, you have Stan Wawrinka breakthrough and join the major club. He wins the Australian Open, beating uh, Nadal in the final. Later in 2014, you've got, we talked about Djokovic uh, beating Roger at Wimbledon. We just talked about Marin Cilic winning the U.S. Open. And you had... um, Nadal won, yeah, the 2014 French Open. So 2014 was unique in that you had four different major champions. We had not had that in a really long time. Parody. In in the men's game, exactly. Uh, 2015, kind of the same in that um, you you have Stan Wawrinka. Like, I I think Stan is is maybe the big story here over this stretch. Not the big story, but he is a story because – Roger doesn't fade, but he's not winning titles. And in this stretch, you have Stan Wawrinka winning three majors. Um, He wins the 2015 French Open, and that was a big deal because that's where Djokovic was going for the career Grand Slam. So Stan, wearing those hideous uh, shorts, beats Djokovic in the final, denying Djokovic the career Grand Slam. He wins his second major title, go to the uh, U.S. Open. That was Djokovic over Federer 2016. Uh, Djokovic finally breaks through. He wins the French Open. He completes the career Grand Slam. And then he goes into the wilderness a bit. Um, this is where Djokovic, uh, he's, he's got the elbow the diet. issues. Well, the diet had already happened, but I mean, he had already shifted his diet, but you know, he really got into some of the, the holistic lifestyles and practices that he's a big proponent of, and they certainly seem to have worked for him. But it, it just seemed like that maybe from the outside looking in, the, the motivation might have dipped a bit because you, you lock up the career Grand Slam. You've done it. Like, how do you – I always think about this. Like, if I won a major – I'm always amazed you watch, like, the Masters in golf, and then the next week you see the guy playing – the guy who just won the Masters playing, I think it's, like, in Memphis, at like, the St. Jude Classic. Like, if I won the Masters, I would want to just, like, put my feet up for a week um, or any major tennis tournament or any tor- tennis tournament for that matter. But these guys just to do it week in, week out – you wonder about the motivation. Um, I think the other big story from this stretch is we are still not seeing the ascendance of that next generation of guys. Um, Del Potro is still off the tour more often than not because of injuries. Um, Marin Cilic is the only member of this generation that has really won a major. You say this generation, you think of Dimitrov, Cilic, I guess throw Del Potro in there. Injuries were his problem. Nishikori, uh, there's somebody else I'm forgetting, but like that group Rionich. of guys. Now, Burdich is older. Rionich. No, Rionich. Yeah, that, that's who I was thinking of. Yeah. yeah. Um, and he'll get to a major final eventually. But like that group still unable to punch through and win majors. That's another story. So there's certainly plenty going on where we have the emergence of, of Nick Kyrgios and the uh, 
eyeballs he draws to the game and brings to the game. So on the men's side, it, it was a lot of Stan. It's still Roger here. It's Djokovic winning the career Grand Slam. There's a lot of people shuffling in and out. 2016 is the year Andy Murray finished the year as the world number one. That was maybe his best year where he won, defended his Olympic gold, won Wimbledon again. Uh, it was a great year for Andy Murray, uh, and he charged through at the finish line. He saw the opportunity to finish number one of the world, so he really took the bit between his teeth late in the year and played really well down the stretch to secure that ranking. Well, Brian, I put you on the spot, but you hit it out of the park, and that's just a testament to your skill. Okay, in his first tournament, Brian, since going out in the quarters of Wimbledon 2016 against, as we mentioned, uh, Milos Rionic, a six-month gap. This is 35, after all. Uh, Australian Open 2017. First things first. First order of business. Rogers shirt. The white with like almost the inverted zebra pattern? Yes. I like it. Uh, one of the last, maybe the last Nike look. Uh, this is very late in their partnership. Uh, it gets... You often wonder, does it get the iconic treatment because he won in it? And I would say the answer is probably yes, because he looked pretty good losing in a lot of outfits too. I like the the white with black shirt. Did you like that? I did. I actually, my note here was, I think I'm in love. Oh, wow. I, I think it is, I part of it is, part of it is context and situational. This was a, I, I told you this before we uh, pressed record. Um, I forgot how emotional this final was and how significant this final was. As a above-average fan of the sport, I had been waiting for a Nadal-Federer final again, not knowing if I was ever going to get one. And I'll say that also by saying I was, I was hoping for one outside of the French Open, right? So right. basically one that, that my boy would have a chance to win. Felt more words. winnable, yeah. Um, but I just, it, it, it's a great look. He pulled it off, okay? He pulled it off. Uh, even the pink shoes. They're both wearing pink shoes. Oh, yeah. Um, we're going to do our final, I think, on, on our final episode, which is like you reminded me, oh, two weeks away. We're going to do a couple of, be- I'll do a couple of best of bits and I'll send you them in advance. And I think we'll finally rank our, our favorite uh, outfits. I think this might be my favorite just because of the situation and the fact that it also looks great. Now, if I wore it, I'd look like a fool. Okay. So would I. But he killed it. He looked. He looked stunning. Yes, he did. And I actually want to preface what we're about to talk about. So we did not get our first look at this outfit at the Australian Open because Roger's buildup to the Australian Open is very different. He played in what's known as the Hopman Cup, which is one of the, actually, it's no longer on the calendar. I'll explain that in a moment. One of the more fun events and one of the more popular events out there. So it was a tournament, a co-ed, so mixed event, uh, for countries, one big uh, thing in this stretch also of the 2013 to 2016 period we didn't talk about was Roger uh, teaming with Stan Wawrinka and his Swiss teammates to win the Davis Cup. We talked about the importance of that. They do it in 2014. So, Roger, that's one of the biggest uh, accomplishments in that stretch, the 2014 Davis Cup title. 2017, he plays the Hopman Cup. It's an exhibition, but it's fun. It's a great way to start the season. It's out in Perth, Western Australia. Uh, so he signed up for a few years of committing to the Hopman Cup. He did some tourism initiatives for the Western Australian government. Teams up with Belinda Bencic. She's a young Swiss player. Uh, they don't make it out. They will eventually win the Hopman Cup in one of their subsequent performances. But 2017, it's a different way to ease into things and probably a great way for Roger to ease into things after not having played since uh, Wimbledon the previous June, July. He's ranked 17th in the world now. And there's some names in this draw that we haven't really talked about much before or seen even on this podcast. They didn't necessarily play against Roger in this tournament, but I'm going to rattle off a bunch of names here and just kind of give me your, your take. It's sort of like the new breed, but some of them are not so new breed. Diego Schwartzman, Alex Zverev, Francis Tiafo. That's the first trio that I have here. Okay, so Diego Schwartzman is Argentinian, and he is one of the smaller, play- maybe the smallest player on tour. He's about, I think, listed at like 5'6". Um, but hits the ball really big for somebody his size. Everybody likes him. He's very popular. Um, But as good as he is, does he have that firepower to break through to the next level? 
question might be no. Sasha Zverev, Alexander Zverev, uh, one of the more enigmatic players, you might say right now, because he has done everything except win majors. And he's the first member of this next generation of players to really break, you know, they actually call it the next gen. They have the next gen finals. The Zverev, I mean, maybe Dominic teams a little bit, like he's kind of in between, like he's, he's not. He's in my next trio for you. Right, so team we're going to get to in a moment, but Zverev is a little bit younger than team. So Zverev is the son of some great Soviet players who were not able to compete outside the Soviet Union. He grew up in Germany, has a much older brother, not much, but about a 10, year, 10 years older brother named Misha Zverev, who Roger plays in the first round in Australia 2017. Zverev was the first of that Tsitsipas, um, that era group, uh, Shapovalov, to win Masters titles. Uh, he won the DC tournament a couple of times, but he just has not been able to get it done at a major. Um, so that's the big question about Zverev. Like, how does the game translate from best of five, um, from best of three, rather, to best of five? And he has not been able to do that. And it's also, then the, the pressure starts, the question starts. A lot like with Andy Murray a couple of years ago when he had all the success. And Murray had more success by now than Zverev had. Like, he just had more titles. Right. Um, you have more pressure and just the questions of when is that breakthrough going to come? It eventually did come for Murray, but Zverev yet to get to a major final. He did win uh, the year end finals, which is probably the, you know, maybe not the, the fifth biggest event you could win, but it's, it's pretty close. I would say actually it is probably the fifth biggest event you could win. Um, he won the ATP finals in 2018. Uh, so yeah, that's my Sasha Zverev piece. Francis TFO. So Francis Tiafo, um, one of the great, you know, all-American stories, the son of Im immigrants from Sierra Leone. His parents settled in the Washington, D.C. area. His father gets a job in construction, building a new tennis center in the D.C. area. It's done. They need a guy to run the, uh, like, be in charge of maintenance, essentially, at the facility. His father gets the job. So Francis and his brother Franklin grow up, essentially, at a tennis facility. And Francis Tiafo, um was able to take that rise. Uh, let me say that like in English. Um, so Francis and his brother, Franklin, they climb and they find a way to become some of the more, or Fra Francis especially finds a way to become one of the more promising players out there. Uh, big success as a junior. Um, he was in the top like two or three in the world as a junior, starts winning titles and then the big breakthrough came actually in Australia a few years later from 2017, got through to the uh, quarterfinals in 2019, got into the top 25. Hasn't really been able to sustain that big breakthrough. Um, went through a bit of a slump in the back half of last year. So it'll be interesting to see as, as tennis restarts here what uh, Francis is able to do. He was actually somebody who... Uh, tested positive for COVID-19. So he was uh, down for a bit, but he's uh, healthy and ready to go now. Future champion, Grand Slam champion? Very good question. Um, like, I'm going to avoid a yes, no answer. Like, he's got the ability. Is he going? You know, we've said lots of guys have had the ability, but they haven't done it. Um, and there have been surprises. He, he's got the tools. He's part of this American generation, the Taylor Fritz, Riley Opelka, uh, Tommy Paul's been a bit more of a late bloomer. Like this is a promising time for young Americans and Tiafo is a big reason why. Going to mention one young American in just a second here. Roger's path uh, to the final of the Australian Open 2017. Uh, Jürgen Meldzer first round, one time ranked eighth player in the world, one and four against Roger Lifetime. Second round, Noah Rubin, an American who's a qualifier, took Roger to a tiebreak in the final set. That feels like a win. It does. And this is the last time Noah Rubin got to the second round of a major. But you might say, wow, that name sounds familiar. If he hasn't had that much success on the court, why have I heard this name? So Noah Rubin's extremely active just in, in the broader tennis world. He's had some bad luck with injuries the last couple of years. He is playing his way back to health. Um, but he is very active in some of the off-court issues that surround tennis. So the first thing you, you might've seen the uh, behind the racket series where you'd see a picture of a player holding a share on social media with a racket in front of his face or her yeah. face. And then they would have a, they would just share some thoughts. So Noah Rubin was kind of the person spearheading this. Now on a broader level, he's really pushing for reform essentially in the, in the model of tennis and in how 
just the sport is run because he's playing primarily at the challenger level where there's not a lot of money for the players. It, it's just, it's just a tough place to try to earn a living and move forward and develop as a professional. So he has become very outspoken in trying to push for some changes. He's got a podcast with my friend, Mike Cation, who's a tennis broadcaster as well. Uh, it's called behind the racket. It's very good. Lake keep uh, the big French sports newspaper, they recently had a ranking of like the 20 most important people in tennis. Federer was number one, maybe his most powerful, most important. I think Federer was one and Noah Rubin was on the list. And you're thinking, okay, here's a guy who right now, let me check, is ranked like the 300s, but he's trying to kind of climb back. He's a former Wimbledon juniors champion. He was an NCAA uh, runner up in the year he played at Wake Forest. So his ranking, okay, it's, it's in the 200s right now, but he's somebody who has a lot of heft in the game. And I, I think that we'll, we'll be hearing from him for a while, hopefully on the court as well. But he has certainly set some things in motion that could lead to, to larger change down the road. Yeah, it sounds like a president, future president of ATP material. Um, I, you would have to ask him if he would want that because he's very outspoken about just the ATP model. I think he... You know, we talk a lot about some of the issues with tennis, and one of them is just all the different stakeholders in the sport. You've got the ATP, the WTA, the four majors, the ITF. So there's a lot of people with their hands in the cookie jar, and that's a frequent criticism of his, that there is not that one centralized driving force, and with that becomes pro- – I mean, I don't want to put – I, I kind of am putting words in his mouth, but that's like sort of the message that he tries to get sure. out. But there's just, there's not enough like unity pushing the sport in one direction. Fascinating. Definitely check out uh, his podcast with Mike. Uh, they've had obviously a lot to talk about this spring and summer with the restart, uh, with some of the different decisions and discussions and things that have happened. But a really fascinating podcast. I'll totally check it out on the way home today. Thanks. Third round. Uh... Oh, by the way, speaking of second round, Novak is out in the second round of this tournament to Istomin. Yes. Uh, that's a big deal for both of these two finalists, right? Because neither one was expected to be there. Yes and no. But this was also, we talked about Djokovic in the wilderness a bit. We didn't really know what to expect out of Djokovic in this tournament. So, I, I yes, he's, you know, Andy Murray was the top seed in this tournament. Right. Um, and he was shocked by Misha Zverev in uh, who we'll get to in a bit because he's going to play Roger. Um, but yeah, Djokovic going out early. Yeah, losing to Dennis Istomin is a big surprise, but it's not um, not shocking that Djokovic wasn't the winner of this Australian Open. But yes, losing that early to Dennis Istomin, that was a surprise. It's definitely a name that it's safe to say Roger and Rafa had circled on their you know, list of like, okay, well, this tournament is less of a burden or less of a, not burden, but it's sort of more attainable, if you will, because um, I think it'll, it becomes clear when you hear Roger talk about it after he wins. But Tomas Burdick, round of 32, an unusually quick clinic for Roger. Um, and then Kei Nishikori, round of 16. I quite enjoy watching this guy play. His peak rank was four. It was a one-time hitting partner, I learned, uh, for Roger at a Wimbledon, a perennial quarterfinalist since 2012 and a U.S. Open finalist in 2014. This match goes five sets. Is the window closed or is it closing for Kei Nishikori? I feel like he's a worthy champion. Uh, he'll be 31 this year. I wouldn't say the window is closing because of that, but you know his, his health has been a, a problem just for a while, just the, just the fitness issues. Yeah. Um, and that conspiring with age, like that's not a good combination of problems to have. Uh, can he go deep into, into majors? Yes, but he's another one where that that difference from he's not a, a really big guy going from three sets to five sets over two weeks like that takes a big toll on you, and that's been an issue. This was going to be I think we've talked about this before on the podcast. Twenty twenty was going to be a huge year for K because he's Japanese with the Olympics. Right. You know, he I don't know exactly how much, but he is in terms of endorsements. I mean, he might he might have more money than Federer or close to it. Like he is one of the top players on tour in terms no of kidding. like Japanese brands love putting K as the face of their product. Um, so this would have been a big year. So that being said, Naomi will actually eclipse him then. Cause she's a 
she's more formidable. She's won Grand Slams and she's younger, obviously. So I'm sure her endorsement dollar spike is also you. You mentioned we mentioned her last time also, but I feel like if Kay is able to get to that level, then I feel like the sky's the limit for Naomi. Absolutely. So Misha Zverev in the quarterfinals. Um, he's obviously not the better Zverev, but he made it to the quarterfinals of this Grand Slam. Any takeaways from that match or from him in general? So, I mean, he beat the world number one to get to a major quarterfinal. That's like a a semi-decent takeaway. Yeah, no, that's like, it's a career moment. And he hasn't really done anything approaching that in his career. What's interesting though, his, I mean, he's been on tour for, for a while. He's going to be 33 years old soon by the time the U.S. Open starts. But he really blossomed like once his brother started um, really making a name for himself. Like before that, I mean, he was... You know, he, he got to a, like a 250 final here, but then his best results have come as he approached 30 and got north of 30. He played a lot of doubles uh, with his brother and without his brother. Um, so he's somebody who is just a, a journeyman, but this is that time to shine. And yeah. good on him for beating the world number one at a major. The semis, Roger played Stan, ranked four. Uh, he came back down two sets to, to give Roger a heck of a match here. Um, main takeaway from this whole draw though, uh, Brian, is that Roger took quite a path to the final. One of his yeah. toughest to date. Absolutely. Well, once we talk about the final and that Nadal gets there, yes, because I mean, you look at the first two or three matches, it's not the hardest road, but I do say that this goes on like the, the Mount Rushmore of Federer major titles. And it's a combination of, as you just said, the, the field he had to navigate to win and the fact that it came after the layoff. Rafa's path, Mayer, Baghdadis, Zverev, Sasha Zverev, that is. That was a five-setter. The only person that really tested him in this field that I saw, Monfils, Rionic, and then Dimitrov. It was an unexpected final, but a welcome one. If I were to ask you, Brian, what's the one shot uh, that dictated Roger's outcome in this match, what would you say to put you on the spot? There was one type of shot that won this match for him. Is there one that stood out to you in particular? Uh, my answer will be that literally the Saturday before this final, I went on vacation with my then girlfriend, now wife, um, and I didn't watch the final. So yeah, I'm off the spot, I guess. So it was his cross-court backhand. I think he had 14 winners on that shot alone. I'm going to go through this set by set real quick and then... Let me redeem myself for a moment here because, yes, I thought you meant the exact like shot in a certain point in a certain situation. But yes, that cross-court backhand was a very different look he was giving Nadal. He was able just to execute it well. I'm going to show you one in a moment, um, a quick clip. But first set, Roger takes 6-4 with an ace and a gentle look over to his box. The... Broadcast made a point to, to sort of show his nerves. There's, this was more of a psychological battle than a physical one. Um, and I think that th- when I talked to you before we pressed record, it reminded me of how important this was to him. We don't know if this is ever going to happen again. This could very well be the last final between the two of them. Uh, and it was very real and very visceral. Um, Nadal gets the second set 6-3. The third set is where that psychological battle begins. Roger overcomes three break points, way wide serves to Roger's forehand, to Rafa's forehand for aces. Uh, I want to show you one. And I just want to, my general question is, is this like a risky shot? If you're watching these shots, if you're calling these matches, I have to remind myself how to do the multimedia here. If you can't hear the audio, I don't care. I just want you to see the shot. And he did this 14 times, basically. I'm going to play it again. Yeah, play it one more time. It's fast, Brian. It's nasty. He usually, his backhands are usually slices. He usually takes a lot of pace off the ball. He was smashing these, this match. And it was to Rafa's forehand. And Rafa did not know what to do with it. At least three times he looks over at his box like WTF. Was this risky? is my question, or did Roger just have, what was the strategy here, in other words? Well, different eras, 
between these two. But go back nine years earlier, we talked the 2008 French Open final where Federer just looked like tentative. Yeah. Um, and okay, he's playing on grass. But like this is aggressive, like this kind of shot. Like, is there a risk? Yeah, but he's also- Aggressive is the word. Like we talked about how Nadal had so much success against Federer, especially when he first came on the tour because with his left, Federer with the single hand backhand, that lefty forehand is able to solve it and just throw Federer off his rhythm. But Federer hitting that backhand, it's going into Nadal's forehand, but he's using it as more of an offensive shot. He's using it as a weapon. He's not just getting it back and letting Rafa eat it. He's going like for real intent with it, and Nadal's just not able to get to that. So, yeah, you have to go out and win the match, not just hope that you make fewer mistakes and you're able to wear the guy down. Like This is Federer trying to take the initiative, and it worked. He hit big winners, big winners this final. Rafa always came back. And the response to from the broadcast was always, of course he does. Of course he did. Um, but Roger's eyes were down. His head was down. His eyes were on top of the ball. And he exalted four oublietes. Not come on. Not let's go. But this word that I still don't know what it means. Do you have any idea what it means? Um, so there's a different word. I'm, I'm actually going to you know, do what they teach you at politician school. I'm going to answer the question that I want to answer and not um, the, <laughs> the question you asked. So I was actually talking to a guy, uh, a veteran tennis broadcaster, Chris Bowers, who I've worked for before. He's based in Britain. And he is also like a, a student of languages. Like he's got, he's fluent in several languages, but he was saying that if you listen to Federer on court, he usually talks to himself in Swiss German. And there's a word that he uses, and I, I'm going to look this up and then I'm going to butcher the pronunciation. It's Come on in Swiss German and it hang on. You're a braver man than me because I yeah, know what I'm not you're talking about, but I'm not this, gonna pronounce but it's, it. It's called um I, I know what you're talking about. It's you're talking about the word it's like humietz. Like humietz. Like he's not saying like I, I'm not Swiss German. I can't speak German. I can't right. speak like, I'm not I. good at this. But he's saying come on in Swiss German. But what gets more interesting is Chris my sometimes boss coworker uh, who's been around the world calling tennis, he was saying that if you listen to Federer speak in Swiss German, it's like just the personality is a little bit different. Like he's a little more like self-critic, like he's a little more guarded, like self-critical. And I think amateur psychologists can have a field day with this because this is like the language he grew up speaking. And you wonder like, okay, is this, you know, like, a, a little boy, not a little boy. I mean, he's a, he's a grown man here with four kids by this point, but is this just somebody who's a little bit more nervous? Like, is he speaking Swiss German because like it's where he feels the comfort of childhood? Like there's a lot of questions that I'm not qualified to answer, but yes, the home were, were flying here in, in Melbourne. It's interesting because he chose that word and he did it against one of his greatest foes. And to me, it just signified how much he wanted it. You know, oh, yeah. um, it was, it was unreal. Um, and very just like, like almost like haunting the way he kept saying it like multiple times. I think that reflected the seriousness of the moment. Yeah. He, the tale of the tape, Brian, is that he won break points and he saved break points. Right. So, uh, the word is in a nutshell, clutch. He was ultra clutch this final one of them won 6-1 Federer think, won the third 6-1 so Rafa shrugged that off right and wins the next set which could to any other player kind of put you on your back and go oh my god like I can't like this guy's gonna keep coming at me but Roger found a way in the fifth set and um after getting broken in the first game he breaks and I have a question about this injury timeout for you at the end so I'm gonna save that for when we get there but Roger bounces right back and he gets his prophetic Swiss-German exaltation, the last one of the match, that takes him home. He gets a couple of match point movie bounces, but Rafa's able to hold. That was, I made a note there just to say, like, we were talking about the movie match point, but also, like, a little bit of luck. The universe kind of wanted Roger to win this one as well. It felt. The crowd definitely wanted him to win. Um, as much as everybody, even myself, is pro Nadal at this point in his career. Like, this match, I would have been happy with either outcome, I'll be honest with you. But you could feel this, like, nervous energy for him. Uh, it potentially being his last one. Nadal's down, right? But he's still clutch. He 
gets it to Deuce when he's when Roger gets another break point up four three, um, and they play a twenty six point rally to get just to another break point. Rafa again responds with a big serve, um, and the broadcast says, "Of course he does." Classic, like you can throw your best at me. This is why we we've talked about this many times. Why Rafa is one of the most amazing. Uh, spectacles to watch because nothing you give him is good enough. He's going to play every point like it's his last. And I think we've mentioned this before. He plays like he's broke. And that's what's special about this. And I think at this point, Roger understands that. And that's why those backhand cross-court winners were necessary. He knows that the only way that I'm going to get past this guy is if I throw a shot that he does not expect to come on this particular match on this particular night he came out ahead yeah like we talked when Federer hired Stefan Edberg and they started working together and I said okay they didn't win a major but the seeds of the success Roger was going to have in 2017 2018 are being planted those backhand cross courts are are a perfect example of that that's such a better shot than what Roger was hitting in in 2008 and 2007 way better so much better and it's Federer evolving as a player. Like, okay, I'm not 24 years old anymore. I'm not going to do some things as well as I used to, but what can I do better? And it's that kind of adjustment. Like, hey, let's put a little more attacking intent into these backhands. Let's figure out some different ways. I mean, the stats for this match, like the amount of winners Federer hit, 73. Nadal hits 35 winners. Like that's, Federer, okay, he's going to hit a lot of winners usually, but those are video game numbers. (laughs) <laughs> it's a great way of putting it. What are your thoughts, Brian, on the on match point? Uh, Hawkeye deciding the outcome. Right. It's um. So yes, you, Hawkeye should be there. Like it's important to get the call right. I think tennis is the best review system out of any sport because it's so it's easiest too because it's so black and white. Um. So yeah. So the final point of the match, Nadal did he miss or did Federer hit? Um, Federer hit the shot and, and Nadal shot, challenged and it. And Nadal just challenged because he can't take it with you. I get why Nadal does it, but it's just such an anti-climax, and you've got to sit there and wait for the review. Although it does provide that one moment of anticipation that everybody can then go nuts about, so there is a benefit of that. But when you win a major, like you look back through the years, you see all the tape of, you know, Bjorn Borg falling to the ground and this and that. But like to see two guys freeze and like turn towards the screen and hear the chair umpire say like Mr. Nadal is challenged, like that's just like uh, kind of a. <laughs> kills the aesthetics of it all but yeah it's it's fine nevertheless it's the happiest i remember seeing roger during the trophy presentation he makes a line uh has a line about sharing the trophy with rafa he would have been happy if this was a draw um i thought that was he didn't say it quite so he wasn't elegant but his intention was elegant and i kind of liked that it was a special thing and he continues he goes on this sort of like prophetic sort of rant, if you will, about how um, he, he throws love at his box, which he's never really done before. He calls out the individuals in his box. Um, and then he does the same thing to Rafa's box. He specifically makes a point to sort of dedicate it, the trophy to them in a way. And then the whole, the whole thing, Brian, is just very goodbye-ish. Um, like he knew he wasn't going to be up there very much anymore. And then the final thing, obviously, is I hope to see you next year. But if not, this was a great run. This was a very measured goodbye. Well, my first reaction is it's interesting. You know, we've never seen him uh, shout out everybody in the Djokovic box by name or say he wishes he could share the trophy with Novak. And I I don't think we ever will see that. Um, But I think what's different here is that A, Federer and Nadal are kind of the friendliest of rivals. They have the, you know, the utmost amount of respect for one another, but also how similar their 2016s were. And that they were both just really hung up by injuries that year. Neither of them were able to have anything resembling their most competitive year. So I think Roger's able, Roger knows that Nadal and everybody on his team, they appreciate what he went through and he's appreciating what Rafa went to to get back to the fifth set of a major final after such a lost year. So there is that. And I think that probably also instills in Roger, the sense of nothing is, is for certain in this game. So who knows if I'm going to be back here next year, maybe, maybe he's thinking at that point, if I win, you know, two majors and X amount of titles, maybe I do retire, but we know he didn't retire, but I think he, he has a more of a sense of his own mortality as a tennis player because it's, it's approaching. Yeah, and he's you know 
married, got four kids at this point, and he's obviously on the backside of 35. So it was just an interesting kind of like to compare and contrast the stuff that we've heard him say before at the end of these things. This was a very sort of like Jedi, like Jedi Council, Obi-Wan Kenobi kind of moment for him. Uh, And I I found another pull quote that sort of echoes that. Um, He said he told himself he wanted to play free. Um, and I, I love this actually. It's such, such I, I told, I share this with my son, uh, because it's such, it's so accurate. He said, you play the ball, you don't play the opponent. That's how you're free. That's how you play the game free. You, you play the ball, not the opponent. And, um, there's just something to be said for that. You know, he's, yeah. I, I just, again, this is like late stage Roger Federer here. We still have two more finals to go, uh, grand slams to go, which is kind of a cool thought but thoughts on pat cash real quick and then we'll get some context and wrap this up and get out of here thoughts on pat cash i'm sorry calling rogers medical timeout legal cheating um so rogers took a medical timeout after the fourth set and pat cash's opinion there is the opinion that a lot of people have that being able to just leave the court after you lose a set it essentially ices the other player. Nadal just won the fourth set, so he has some momentum. But there are, like, players leave the court a lot more now than they did when Pat Cash was playing. So that is among players of the Cash generation. They don't like that. But there is a right and a wrong way to, to take these medical timeouts. And it's universally accepted the best time to do it is during a set break. And the reason you leave the court, um, well, cynically is to slow down the other guy's momentum. But oftentimes if it's a medical timeout, if you've got to remove some clothing for treatment, they'll take you off court for that for obvious reasons. Like if you've, you know, where something needs to be wrapped or addressed, they'll just take you back into the locker room or often into the bathroom, just off the court for that. Um, it's his opinion. It's the opinion of, he, he's not alone in that opinion, but it's within the rules. Do people exploit those rules and find some loopholes? Sure, but they find loopholes in in every rule. I mean, but then you counter that with, okay, Nadal came out and was up 3-1 in the set and Roger came back. So he didn't, it didn't look cooled off there. Legal cheating is, is far, but there's always gamesmanship involved in those off-court breaks. I bring it up because I read it just looking, like going through the final, like sort of notes for this. And I was like, legal cheating was like a, was like a quote that just was kind of like, come on, man. Um, all right. Context, Brian. Given their history, the stakes of this final, where do you place it for Roger? In the top. I mean, this might be like top two or three. Top two for me as well, yeah. Um, because it's Nadal, because it's five years after his last major, because of how injury riddled his 2016 had been, because of how he, it looked like he found the fountain of youth. We talked about the improved backhand. He just seemed like the happiest guy in the world. Um, we'll talk about like the final, I guess, Mount Rushmore, but you look at those seminal wins for Federer, Roddick in 09 at Wimbledon, Nadal 07 at Wimbledon, when he wins the French Open, beats Soderling. Okay, that wasn't the most exotic final, but just winning the French Open. And this, just because of, all that we just talked about, this is up there. And, you know, maybe I, I think the two best final wins for Federer off the top of my head are, are this one and, and Wimbledon 09 against Roddick, just because of like the more you win, the more pressure's on. Like there was more pressure on Federer in 09 playing in front of Sampras than there was in 07 when he beats Nadal. Nadal yet to win Wimbledon. Um, so, yeah, this is up there top one or two for me. This whole tournament is one of the most remarkable tournaments because you had, think of the two great rivalries in tennis over the last 20, 30 years. They were the finals. Federer and Nadal, Venus and Serena Williams. We later find out Serena is pregnant when she is beating her sister to win this tournament. I mean, this is a remarkable, remarkable tournament. For sure. Yeah, I remember that. Um, now that you mentioned it, she was like, that's just crazy. Yeah. <laughs> it's a whole sidebar conversation unto itself. Yeah. Amazing tournament, amazing stakes for Roger. He, I, I love the, the back and forth of it. I love the fact that he got through Kei Nishikori, um, the way that he did. And, you know, he got 18 and he thought in his own mind for the first time, the first time I've ever heard him after a match, he kind of was kind of content. Like this is, like, this could be it. And, and, and as, but as we know, 
Uh, we've still got a couple more uh, for now, because this is by no means a capstone on his career, this podcast. But what's on tap? I think we have just a couple, we have one more in 2017 and then one more in 2018, right? Yeah. So Rogers 2017, he wins the, the Sunshine Double, the so-called Sunshine Double. He goes out, wins uh, Indian Wells in Miami, which he had not done in several years. That's a huge accomplishment. You win back-to-back Masters tournaments on separate sides of the U.S. Then he goes out, wins Wimbledon, and then he skips the entire clay season 2017. So this is really a preservation mode, and we'll get into that more uh, next time. Goes out, wins Wimbledon, and then uh, he's got one more, and that's the title defense in Australia in 2018. Awesome. And that final episode, Brian, will be the one where we kind of do like our best of stuff. I'll put some, I'll put some topics together um, and some stuff that we can go back and forth on and just sort of like put a final bow on this amazing uh, and magical and fun career that it's been, I've had the pleasure of being able to revisit with you. Yeah, this has been awesome. And I can't believe we're already in heading towards uh, summer of 2017. Yeah, we're in the home. I, I was, I was always when I when I was when I, we started this, I was thinking to myself like, oh wow, like oh three, oh four, oh five, oh six, oh seven, and then I never even imagined we'd be like this two thousand. Like this, this is the final where I think this is the first one where um, I have my kids were born. Wow, this was yeah. like you know I was I was like so there's like a lot of life happened in these uh, in these last three uh, finals that I look forward to chatting about with you. Same time, same place next time. Let's do it. All right, man. Take care. Uh, I'm also excited. Uh, we talked about this. You're going to be doing the U.S. Open play-by-play coming up, and I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit more in the next couple of episodes, but congratulations to you on that. Where can listeners listen to you call the U.S. Open in a few weeks? Well, you can listen to U.S. Open Radio if you have a smart speaker. You can just say play U.S. Open Radio. Uh, I think we also get simulcast on ATP Tennis Radio, so you can say play ATP Tennis Radio. Uh, if you download the U.S. Open app, great way to track the scores and the schedules and also listen to us. You can hear us right on there. You can go to usopen.org. Uh, there's a whole bunch of ways, and we'll tell you all about them over the next couple of weeks. Awesome. Looking forward to it, man, as always. Thank you so much. Thanks, Vic. Thanks, Vic.